Hello, lovelies. This is going to be a slightly different uh, podcast episode than what you're used to. This is because lots of stuff is going on, and I meant to record this a long time ago, and then we took our two-month break, and yeah, there was just kind of a lot. Um, So this episode is going to be a series of me reading books from within the world of Skyrim itself. Some of these books also were available in other games like Morrowind or Oblivion. Um, I do think this is something that's like right up our alley and that seems like something that I would do. So the three selections of books that I have chosen to read are that of one is a short story, one is something that was written within the world of Skyrim to like like teach something, so like a psalm, like not religious, but like something like that. Um, still a short story, and the one is an actual, like, play, like, a short play that is written out, and there's, like, character, like, it's, it's formatted correctly, so we'll see how this goes. I don't know how long this episode is going to be. I imagine not too long, but, uh, yeah, please bear with me as we go through this together. The first story is called Death of a Wanderer. This is specifically within the country of Skyrim. The last time I saw the old Argonian, I was taken by how alive he seemed, even though he was in the throes of death. The secret, he said, of staying alive is not in running away, but swimming directly at danger. He catches it off guard. Is that how you managed to find this claw? I asked, brandishing the small carving as if it were a weapon. I had found it among his possessions, which I was helping him divvy up amongst his beneficiaries. Should it also go to your cousin, dives from below. At this, his mouth widened, exposing his fangs. If I hadn't known him for long as I had, I would would think that he was snarling, and I knew that to be a smile. He croaked a few times to attempt laughter, but ended up wheezing and coughing, his rancid blood spraying across the bedsheets. Do you know what that is? he asked between coughing fits. I heard stories, I answered, the same as you. Looks like one of those claws for opening the sealed doors in the ancient crypts. I've never seen one myself before. Then you know I would only wish that thing upon my mortal enemy. Giving it to my cousin would be encouraging him to run into one of those barrows and get split by a draugr blade. So you want me to have it then, I joked. Where did you even get this? My kind can find things that your people assumed were gone. Drop something to the bottom of the lake and a Nord will never see it again. Amazing what you can find along the bottoms. He was staring at the ceiling now, and but the way his fogged eyes darted around, I could tell he was seeing his memories instead of the cracked stone above us. Did you ever try to use it? I whispered to him, hoping he could hear me through his fog. Of course, he snapped, suddenly lucid. His eyes widened and fixed on me. Where did you think I got at this? He barked, tearing his tunic open to show a white scar forming a large star-shaped knot in the scales beneath his right shoulder. Blasted Draugr got the drop on me. Just too many of them. I felt awful, since I knew how much he hated talking about his battles he had been in. To him, it was enough that he survived, and any stories would, uh, and any stories amount to boasting. We both sat quietly for several minutes, his labored breathing the only sound. He was the one to break the silence. You know what always bothered me? He asked. Why they even bothered with the symbols? The what? The symbols, you fool. Look at the claw. I turned it over in my hand. Sure enough, etched into the face were three animals. A bear, an owl, and some kind of insect. 
So what do the symbols mean, dear Kaza? The sealing doors. It's not enough just to have the claw. They're made of massive stone wheels that must align with the claw's symbols before they open. It's a sort of lock, I suppose. But I didn't know why they bothered with them. If you had the claw, you also had the symbols open the door. So why... He was broken up by a coughing fit. It was the most I had heard him speak in months, but I could tell how much of a struggle it was. I knew his mind, though, and helped the thought along. Why even have a combination if you're going to write it on a key? Exactly. But as I lay bleeding on that floor, I figured it out. The Draugr are relentless, but far from clever. Once I was down, they continued shuffling about, to no aim, no direction, bumping against one another, the walls. So? So the symbol on the doors weren't meant to be another lock, just a way of ensuring the person entering was actually alive and still had a functioning mind. Then the doors were never meant to keep people out. They were meant to keep the Draugr in. And with that, he fell back asleep. When he woke several days later, he refused to talk about the Draugr at all, and would only wince and clutch at his shoulder if I tried to bring them up. The second story is called The Locked Room. I don't know that this is just specific to Skyrim from my readings. I do believe this is also within the game Oblivion, which is previous to Skyrim. It's The Elder Scrolls IV. Um, but yeah, this is like a sort of tale to teach people about. Well, you'll see. Yana was precisely the kind of student her mentor, Arth Camus, despised. The professional amateur. He enjoyed all the criminal types who were usually his pupils at the stronghold, from the common burglar to the more sophisticated blackmailers, children and young people with strong career ambitions which the art and science of lockpicking could facilitate. They were always interested in simple solutions, the easy way, but people like Yana were always looking for expositions, possibilities, exotica. For pragmatists like Arth Camus, it was intensely vexing. The Red Guard Maiden would spend hours in front of a lock, prodding at it with her wires and picks, flirting with the key pins and driver pins, exploring the hole with a sort of casual fascination that no delinquent possesses. Long after her fellow students had opened their test locks and moved on, Yana was still playing with hers. The fact that she always opened it eventually, no matter how advanced the lock was, irked Arth Camus even further. You're making things much too difficult, he would roar, boxing her ears. Speed is of the essence, not merely technical know-how. I swear that if I put the key to the lock right in front of you, you'd still never get around to opening it. Yana would bear Arth Camus abuse philosophically. She had, after all, paid him in advance. Speed was doubtless an important factor for the picker trying to get somewhere he wasn't supposed to go and the city guard on patrol behind him, but Yana knew it wouldn't apply to her. She merely wanted the knowledge. Arth Kamu did everything he could think to encourage Yana to move faster. She seemed to perversely thrive on his physical and verbal blows, spending more and more time on each lock, learning its idiosyncrasies and personality. Finally, he could bear it no longer. Very late one afternoon after Yana had dawdled over a perfectly ordinary lock, he grabbed the girl by he grabbed the girl by her ear and dragged her to a room in the stronghold, far from the other students, an area they had always been forbidden to visit. The room was completely barren, except for one large crate in the center. There were no windows and no other doors except for the one leading in. Arth Camus slammed his student against the crate and closed the door behind her. There was a distinct click of the lock. This is my test for advanced students, he laughed behind the door. See if you can escape. Yana smiled and began her usual slow 
process of massaging the log, gaining information. After a few minutes had gone by, she heard Arkamu's voice again call out from behind the door. Perhaps I should mention that this is a test of speed. You see that crate behind you? It contains a vampire ancient who has been locked in here for many months. It is absolutely ravenous. In a few minutes' time, the sun will have completely set. And if you have not opened the door, you will be nothing but a bloodless husk. Yana considered only for a moment whether Arthkamu was joking or not. She knew he was an evil, horrible man, but to resort to murder to teach his pupil? The moment she heard a rustling in the crate, any doubts she had were erased. Ignoring all usual explorations, she jammed her wire into the lock, thrust the pegs against the pressure plate, and shoved open the door. Arthkamu was standing in the hallway... Arthkamu stood in the whole hallway beyond, laughing cruelly. So now you've learned the value of fast work. Yana fled from Arthkamu's stronghold, fighting back her tears. He was certain that she would never return to his tutelage, and he considered that he had taught her, at last, a very valuable lesson. When she did return the next morning, Arthkamu registered no surprise, but inside he was seething. I'll be leaving shortly, she explained quietly but I believe I've developed a new type of lock, and I'd be grateful if you give me your opinion on it. Arthkamu shrugged and asked her to present her design. I was wondering if I might use the vampire room to install the lock. I think it would be better if I demonstrated it. Arthkamu was dubious, but the prospect of the tiresome girl leaving at last put him in an excellent and even indulgent mood. He agreed to give her access to the room. For all morning and most of the afternoon, she worked near the slumbering vampire, removing the old lock and adding her new prototype. Finally, she asked her old master to make, to take a look. Finally, she asked her old master to take a look. He studied the lock with an expert eye and found little to be impressed with. This is the first and only pick-proof lock, Yana explained. The only way to open it is to have the right key. Arthkamu scoffed and let Yana close the door, shutting him in the room. The door clicked and he began to work. To his dismay, the lock was much more difficult than he had thought it would be. He tried all his methods to force it and found that he had to resort to his hated student's method of careful and thorough exploration. I need to leave now, called Yana from the other side of, from the other side of the door. I'm going to bring the city guard to the stronghold. I know that it's against the rules, but I really think it's for the welfare of the villagers not to have a hungry vampire on the loose. It's getting dark, and even though you aren't able to unlock the door, the vampire might be less proud about using the key to escape. Remember when you said, if I put the key to the lock right in front of you, you'd still never get around to opening it? Wait, Arthgamu yelled back. I'll use the key. Where is it? You forgot to give it to me. But there was no reply, only the sound of footfall disappearing down the corridor beyond the door. Arthkamu began to work on the lock, but his hands were shaking with fear. With no windows, it was impossible to tell how late it was getting. Were minutes flying by, or were it hours? He only knew that the injured vampire would know. The tools could not stand very much twisting and tapping from Arthkamu's hysterical hands. The wire snapped in the keyhole, just like a student. Arthkamu screamed and pounded on the door, but he knew that no one could possibly hear him. It was while sucking in his breath to scream again, he heard the distinct creak of the crate opening behind him. The vampire ancient regarded the master locksmith with an insane, hungry eyes and flew at him in a frenzy. Before Arthkamu died, he saw it. On a chain that had been placed around the vampire's neck while it had been sleeping was a key. Alright, and the last of our three stories is actually a stage play. Um, it's called The Legend of Crately House. 
So there are a total of six characters. There's Theophone, who's an Imperial man. He's 24. He is a thief. We have Narim, a Bosmer man. He's 20, also a thief. Solanus Crately, an Imperial man, 51, who is a merchant. Dominita Crately, his wife, 40 years old. Some of these names I'm having a hard time pronouncing, so you'll have to forgive me. This is Alva Crately, their daughter, who is 16 years old. And then Menistus Crately, their son, who is 11. The setting is the famous haunted Crately house in Shendahal. First and second floors requiring a stage with a second story where most of the action takes place. So the stage is dark. There's a creaking noise, footsteps on the stairs, the sound of a man breathing, but we see nothing. Then a voice calls from above. Hello, is someone down there? Should I wake Papa? No, maybe I was imagining it. A light from a lantern can be seen coming from the upstairs, and the slim form of a beautiful young girl, Elva, descends the staircase at stage right nervously. From the light of the lantern, we can see that we are looking at the second floor of a dusty old house, with a set of stairs going up and another one going down on stage right. An unlit stone, an unlit stone fireplace sits at stage left. A table, a locked chest, and a wardrobe complete the furnishing. I'm just making certain. Go back to bed, Menistus. As the girl passes the table, we see a Bosmer Narim slide gracefully up from behind and around her field of sight, carefully avoiding the pool of light. She doesn't appear to see him as he creeps closer to her, his footsteps silent on the hard wooden floor. When he is almost on her, there's a sudden crash from down below. This causes the Bosmer to leap away, hiding again behind the table. The girl does not seem to notice the sound, and Narim, peeking from around the table, watches her. No, probably just my imagination, but I'm going to check downstairs. Is there a fire? I'm cold. Elva looks towards the long-dead fireplace, and so does Narim. Of course there is. Can't you hear it crackling? I guess so. Elva suddenly jumps as if she's heard something which we do not. She turns her attention down the stairs to the first floor. Hello? Elva, lantern ahead of her, begins the descent. She does not seem to notice as an imperial. Theophon, carrying a big bag of loot and a lantern of his own, calmly walks right past her. Excuse me, young lady, just robbing you? Elva continues her slow, nervous walk downstairs, which we can see now thanks to her light. She looks, she looks around the low-ceilinged, thoroughly looted room as the action continues upstairs. Theophone's lantern provides dim light for the second floor. Why are you hiding, Narim? I told you, they can't see you and they can't hear you. Narim sheepishly steps out from behind the table. I can't believe they're all ghosts. They seem so alive. That's what spooks them, superstitions. But they ain't gonna hurt us. Just relieving the past. 
just reliving the past the way ghosts do the night they was murdered stop thinking about that and you'll get yourself a willy spooked i got all kinds of stuff on the first floor silver candlesticks sell even some gold what'd you get narim holds up his empty bag sorry theophone i was just about to start get to work on the chest then that's what you're here for oh yeah i got the talent you got the ideas and the equipment you refilled that lantern before we came here, right? I can't work in the dark. Don't worry, Narim. I promise, no surprises. Narim jumps when a young boy, Menestus, appears on the stairs. The lad creeps down quietly and goes to the fire. He acts as if he's stoking a fire, feeding it wood, poking at the embers, though there is no wood, no poker, no fire. We got all the time in the world, friend. No one comes near this house. If they seize our lantern light, they'll just assume it's the ghosts. Narim begins picking the lock on his chest of drawers, while Theophone opens a wardrobe and begins going through the contents, which are mostly rotten cloth. Narim is distracted, looking at the young boy. Hey, Theophone, how long ago did they die? About five years ago. Why are you asking? Just making conversation. As they talk, Elva downstairs, finally having searched the small room, acts as if she's locking the front door. Didn't I already tell you the story? No, you just said, hey, I know a place we can burgle where no one's at home, except for the ghosts. I thought you was joking. No joking, partner. Five years ago, the Critters lived here. Nice people. You seen the daughter Elva and the boy Menestus. The parents were Selenus and Dominita, if I remember rightly. Narim successfully unlocks the chest and begins rummaging through it. While he does so, Menestus gets up from the fire, apparently warmed up, and stands at the top of the stairs down. Elva. The boy's voice causes Narim, Theophone, and Elva to all jump. Why aren't you in bed? I was just going to check the cellar. So what happened? Oh, they was ripped to piece. Halfway eaten. No one ever knew who did it or what did neither. Though there was rumours. Elva opens the door to the cellar and goes in. The light disappears from the first floor. Menestis patiently waits at the top of the stairs, humming a little song to himself. Theophone, having exhausted the possibilities in the wardrobe, helps Narim sort through the gold in the chest. Pretty good haul, eh? Oh, the rumors, right. Well, they says, old lady Dominita was witch before she married Selenus. Gave it all up for him to be a good wife and mother. But witches don't take kindly to it. They found her and sent her some kind of creature here, late at night. Something horrible, right out of a nightmare. Elva, what's taking you so long? Gods, are we going to watch them get killed, right in front of us? Elva! What's happening down there? Stop playing around, boy, and go to sleep. Papa! Menestus, frightened, runs to the stairs up, 
Along the way, he bumps into Narim, who falls down. The boy does not seem to notice, but continues up th to the dark third floor sleeping porch off stage. Narim jumps to his feet, white-faced. Are you alright? Never mind that. He touched me. How can a ghost touch me? Well, of, of course they can. Some, anyhow. You heard of ancestor spirits guarding tombs, and that ghost of the king that they had in Daggerfall. If they don't touch you, what good are they? Why are you so surprised? You thought he moved right through you, I figure. Yes! Selenus, the man of the house, comes down the stairs cautiously. Don't leave us alone, Selenus. We're coming with you. Wait, it's dark. Let me get some light. Selenus goes to the cold fireplace, sticks his hand forward, and suddenly in his arm there is a lit burning torch. Narim scrambles back, horrified. I felt that! I felt the heat of the fire! Come on down, it's alright. Menestus leads his mother, Dominita, down the stairs where they join Selenus. I don't know why you're so scared, Narim. I must say I'm disappointed. I didn't figure you for a superstitionalist. Theophone goes for the stairs up. Where are you going? One more floor to search. Can't we just go? Narim watches as the family of three, following Selenus and his torch, walk down towards the first floor. There, you see? If you don't like ghosts, third floor is the place to be. All four of them are downstairs right now. Theophone goes upstairs, off stage, but Narim stands at the top of the stairs, looking down at the family. The three look around at the first floor as Aelva did, finally turning towards the cellar door. All four? Selenus opens the cellar door. Aelva? What are you doing down in the cellar, girl? You see her? I, I think so. I see someone. Hello? All four, Theophone? What if there's five ghosts, Theophone? Selenus thrusts his torch through the cellar door and it suddenly extinguishes. The first floor falls into darkness. Menestis, Dominita, and Selenus scream, but we cannot see what is happening to them. Narim is nearly hysterical, screaming along with them. Theophone runs downstairs from the third floor. What is it? What if there what if there's five ghosts? The man, the wife, the boy, the girl, and what killed them? And what killed them? And what if it's a ghost that can touch us too, just like the others? From the darkened first floor, there is a creak of a door opening, though we cannot see it. And then there is a heavy clawed footfall, one step at a time, coming towards the stairs. Don't get so upset. If it can't touch us, what make you think that it wants to? All the others didn't even notice we was here. Theophone's lantern dims slightly. He adjusts it carefully. Only, only what if it ain't a ghost, Theophone? 
What if it's the same creature and it's still alive and it ate nothing since and it ain't ate nothing since five years ago? The footsteps begin the slow, heavy stomp up the stairs, though whatever it is, we cannot see. Narim notices the light beginning to dim from the lantern, despite Theophone frantically trying to fix it. You said you refilled the lamp. The light goes out entirely, and the stage is filled with darkness. You promised me you refilled the lamp. More footsteps in a horrible, horrible howl. The men scream. The curtain falls. Thank you for listening to another episode of Canonically Incorrect. You can follow us on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Tumblr. You can send us your fanfiction recommendations, or if you're a fanfiction author that would like to be on our show, email us at canonicallyincorrectpod at gmail.com. If you would like to support us, you can donate a one-time donation at ko-fi.com slash canonicallyincorrect. <laughs> you can subscribe to our Patreon monthly at patreon.com slash canonicallyincorrect. Thank you to our Patreons at Tumnal River and Riley C for your continued support. Donate to AO3! And we'll see you guys next time! Bye! Bye.